Radio Mano Papachango. What's up, everybody? I'm back in Topanga, California after a month on the road with Casilda and Scarlett, the lovely Scarlett and the lovely Casilda. Uh, what a trip. Holy cow. What a trip. You'll be hearing about it in dribbles through uh, upcoming podcasts. You've already heard a few of the podcasts that I recorded on the road. Jeff Leach, um, Josh Fox. On the way back, we stopped near Bisbee. We actually went through Bisbee, although uh, the great Doug Stanhope was in Asia at the time, but um, we decided to just take an alternate route anyway, and we it took us through Bisbee. And uh, there's a guy near there, uh, Dorothy Morgan, I believe, who's a listener to this podcast, sent me an email saying, hey, if you're going to be in that part of the country, you should check out the rattlesnake guy. Don't forget the rattlesnake guy. Like, who the fuck is the rattlesnake guy? Anyway, uh, I stopped. We stopped there, and he came out to our campsite, and we hung out for a couple of hours, and I got to meet the rattlesnake guy, who is one of the most fascinating people I've ever met. So that's in an upcoming episode as well. Um, then we stopped in Tucson, which is a surprisingly cool town. I had no idea. I sort of Tucson and Phoenix just sort of merged in my head into a desert golf course retiree kind of scene, uh, which I guess is is pretty accurate as far as Phoenix goes. But Tucson is actually a very funky, cool town with a lot of street art and um, quirky folks and good food and uh cassie and i were only there for a couple of days but we really liked it so i think we'll be headed back to tucson then we got up here and we went to the bombay beach biennale last weekend that was incredible just incredible if you follow me on instagram you've seen those photos some of the photos i've posted i'll post a few more um but just incredible art music, ballet, opera, just happenings in this post-apocalyptic weirdscape in the desert next to the Salton Sea. Very strange and wonderful. Uh, so I gave a little talk there. The theme this year was God's silence. And um, my talk was built upon the notion that Perhaps the gods aren't silent. It's just that we have forgotten how to listen. So it took a sort of question the premise approach to that. Uh, this episode is with a guy named Cyrus Sutton, who I heard about a few years ago. And I think actually I came across him because of his van. Speaking of Scarlet, uh, yeah, he, I was looking online at vans and people who live in their vans and this guy came up, he's got a massive Instagram following and he's a fantastic photographer. He's a, turns out he's a documentary filmmaker, a surfer, 
photographer, um, ecological, environmental activist, really smart guy, very thoughtful, deep, interesting character. And um, anyway, I came across his van and he had this little thing up there about how he and his buddy put together the van. And what I was really struck by was the hammock. He had a hammock in his van. And if you know me, you know I love hammocks. So I that just jumped out at me immediately, and I thought, I like this guy. This is a guy who's living in a van, and he's got a hammock. I mean, damn, that could be me. Um, anyway, I really liked the way he put his van together. And then as it turned out, I ended up with the same van, roughly, and I uh, outfitted the inside of it. Can you outfit the inside of something, or is that infitting? Anyway, I I did the inside of the van basically the same way he did with the redwood and cedar panels and and a hammock so there you go turns out Kyle Tierman my my sort of um entree to the world of surfers um had met Cyrus at some point I don't know if it was at a film festival or through surfing or what it was but had him on his podcast and put us in touch and then Cyrus came through town and lo and behold I found myself sitting in the van that I had seen online years earlier and sort of modeled mine after so Cyrus Sutton is this week's guest fantastic guy I really enjoyed the conversation before we get to that though I want to give a quick shout out to two listeners of the podcast Troy Ainsworth who is, uh, I saw on Twitter, is going in for surgery and he's sort of loaded up on podcasts to listen to while he's recovering. And uh, this is one of them. So, Troy, we're sending you lots of healing energy. And, uh, and of course, Nate of the North, who is a longtime friend of the podcast, he's up there in Alaska, Nate Atwood. Um, he's been coordinating, uh, putting together the show notes for the podcast and doing a lot of them himself. Uh, he's feeling kind of down. He's got uh, Lyme's disease, which is a horrible, mysterious, chronic condition. And uh, so Nate sort of comes and goes. And at the moment, he's he's feeling pretty pretty bad. So I uh, just wanted to let you know we're listening. Or we're, sorry, you're listening, hopefully. And we're thinking about you, Nate. Get better. This is a big day for me, ladies and gentlemen, um, because in about an hour I'm going to the doctor who's going to stick his finger up my ass. It'll be the first time any man has ever put anything in my ass. I'm getting a prostate exam, which uh, at my age, I guess you're supposed to start getting them around 50, so I'm running behind on that. But, uh, you know, these things... He's, he's one of it's like a, a rite of passage, I guess. So I'll let you know how that goes. In fact, I mean, this may not happen, but I talked to the urologist on the phone when we were setting up the appointment, and he sounded like a really nice guy and and really kind of funny. He had a great good sense of humor. He was familiar with Sex at Dawn. He asked me what I did. I mentioned it. He's like, Oh yeah, I know that book. That's great. Anyway. Um, if he's as cool in person as he seemed on the phone, I'll uh, try to get him to do a podcast. I think that would be kind of fun to have my urologist on the podcast. What do you think? Also, podcast, I was thinking, should I change the name of the podcast? It may be too late now. We're four years into it or whatever it is. Um, 
But every I notice when I tell people the name of the podcast, they have trouble like tangentially speaking. A lot of people don't know the word. They can't picture it. I imagine it might be hard for them to remember. I don't know. I was thinking maybe change it to Vanthropology. No, Cassie doesn't like that idea. She's shaking her head over there on the sofa. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, it doesn't really matter. I see a lot of people, they name their podcast after them, right? The Kyle Tierman Show could call it the Chris Ryan show, but that seems kind of, I don't know, not really. No, Cassie doesn't like that either. <laughs> All, right. All right. Yeah, we have a studio audience apparently for this little intro here. Uh, I am going to shut up. I'm going to let it go with that. We were at uh, South by Southwest in Austin, as you may know, and there was a guy there demonstrating these these recording machines that I guess DJs use. You can layer tracks and do all sorts of stuff. And Cassie got some headphones on and started messing with one of them. And I ended up chatting with the guy, really, really smart guy. Um, and we we're just standing there chatting for about 10 minutes. And, and finally he, he looked at her and he said, you know, I've never seen anyone like get so into that machine without me even explaining to them how it works. And I said, it's true. Look at her. She's like, she has, she's forgotten where she is. She's just totally into this thing. And, uh, so then I, I sort of interrupted her. I said, what are you doing? And I took the headphones and listened to the track that she had figured out how to work on without even, I mean, there's just numbers and buttons on this thing. And somehow she had made this, pretty cool track so i'm gonna play you out with this track i stuck my phone in between the headphones and recorded some of it this is some of what casilda recorded at south by southwest is there a name for this cassie flabbergasted cassie wants to call it flabbergasted so here you go i'm gonna play you out with a little bit of flabbergasted created by Casilda Jetta on a machine with um, buttons and lights in Austin, Texas last week. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Cyrus Sutton. Ladies and gentlemen, I am at a remote location. I'm sitting in a van down by the river with Cyrus Sutton and Miley. I'm in my favorite place. I'm in a van in a hammock, and I'm with the guy who first gave me the idea, first sort of uh, demonstrated that it's possible to have a, a van with a hammock. <laughs> and I do. I've got one. It stretches the whole length of the... I know you can set yours up so that it's like... Uh, Right, right down the middle. Yeah, yeah, very sweet, Cyrus Sutton. So, Cyrus, you, I first heard of you because I was online looking around at fans, <laughs> which is not like what you're the focus of your life necessarily, right? Yeah, it was just a way to to make ends meet and yeah. what I wanted to do. Yeah, I I saw your video where you went down to San Diego and you had a buddy there who helped you out and you really sort of laid out the materials you guys bought and uh, how you did it. And I remember seeing 
the van all stripped down and sort of watched the step by step and you know it was very cool the way you did it too it was like uh you ever read um henry david thoreau uh yep. walden yeah 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 so it was like that where you were very specific about what everything cost remember he talks about how much the bean the beans cost him and the tool and so he lay it's not only a work of literature he's like you can do this like this is not super expensive you know yeah and i like the way you did that oh thank you yeah yeah that was fun my i just grew up in vans my dad had the same van since 1979 of volkswagen yeah every, every family trip was cut short because of a trip to the mechanic <laughs> and he still has the van he's right? got the van he's a <laughs> so very funny. loyal dude yeah, that's funny thing about people with those Volkswagens that they they all complain about how they break down all the time, but they just stay with them. It's his only car. You really? Know, he commutes to work and stuff. And yeah, he's, I don't know. He just loves it. I had a guy on the podcast who drove a VW van from Chile to Alaska. Oh my God. Yeah. and he, How many times did he break down? Five. Five total <laughs> engine rebuilds that's, along the way. That's about right. Yeah, and then the the van like caught on fire in Alaska and like burned out, and then it was just one thing after another. But I think that was the point. It's called Asta Alaska, hmm. or in English, Hasta Alaska. Did he do a film on it or something? Yeah, he did um, a YouTube channel. Okay, and it's pretty popular. Over a hundred thousand subscribers, I think. Oh, and wow. uh, yeah, it's it's cool, and he sort of picked people up along the way and um, shared the experience, and you know, fell in love, and then the woman went back home to Australia or whatever, and shared the heartbreak, and then he met someone else, and yeah, it, he's a British dude. I forget his name. He had a weird job in Thailand uh, before he got into the van thing. I remember he was working at a tiger sanctuary, wow. and his job was to go in and play with the baby tigers so that they would get accustomed to people being around and understand that people aren't to be eaten. Hmm. Cool job, huh? Yeah. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. Huh. So you, I know you're a serious surfer, which I can tell just looking around the van, I see at least four, five, six surfboards in here. Uh, limited space, six surfboards. That's a serious surfer. Uh, I just had a bunch of boards I wanted to try out. Uh, yeah, down here. So you don't necessarily travel with half a dozen surfboards? Not all the time. <laughs> Usually it's just three. Just three. All right. Um, and you're a filmmaker as well, is that right? Yeah. So how do you describe yourself? Like what? what's your, when people ask you what your life is about, what do you say? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a filmmaker, you know. That's your I, main gig. Yeah. And basically everything I grew up. My mom's a fiber artist and a fiber professor, and I'm retired now. And, and my dad's a landscape architect, landscape architect and professor. And you know, we he summers we would drive around fly fishing and um, going to hot springs and going surfing. And the um, in a lot of ways, like the way I was raised is is kind of the flavor of the month right now. So I've been able to make money on social media um, mm-hmm. as well um, um, by tagging um brands in my content from time to time and that's been like a nice extra boost lately which has helped me um buy my place up in washington right um but looks like a beautiful place thank you yeah it's 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 really uh, it's something i've wanted to do for a long time and so yeah I've, i'm 
that's probably kind of how I got on your radar was through Instagram or something like that. But I've been making surf films for the past since I was 19. Um, I had a pretty successful surf film when I was 19. And um, yeah, and then to kind of have made films along the way, done a lot of different production stuff. And, um, and, um, and then I got sponsored to surf about six years ago before the social media thing happened because I, of, of all the films I'd made and um, I grew up being a competitive longboarder and riding different boards and and so they they hired me on and then I've gotten recently sort of this um, extra boost with probably ad, added longevity because um, my lifestyle and the things I've been taught to care about have become pretty popular so that's what's going on. How do you feel about that? Um, I feel like it's it's a blessing right now that I'm able to do it. I'm really I don't I don't um, I think if somebody looks at, at at what I post online, it's not like I don't work with random companies. I have two people, you know, Hydro Flask and Reef. And Reef I, is surf gear. Yeah, they make sandals. You know, like the, the uh, surf girl butts like back in the '90s campaign. And they right. make sandals and clothes, and they've been supportive for a long time. And um, I like the people there. And and I post once a month, so I'm not like you know, whoring myself out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I'm aware that part of what I do and part of why people are attracted to what I do at this point who haven't seen my work who haven't i don't know if you've seen under the sun or island earth or under the sun or no i wanted to and i know you did um a screening in topanga um yeah a few i don't know four or five months ago something yeah it was at froggies froggies yeah and i reached out to you at the time but it was sold out already and i don't remember what medium i used it whatever but um you were obviously super busy but i was i wanted to come and check it out Um, but it was it was sold out i live right down the road from there oh wow yeah um is it online is it available to to view online yeah it's on we just did a deal with hulu um cool they offered the most favorable terms and it's on itunes and vimeo on demand i mean amazon all that so um but yeah i mean that's what i i feel like I, i like to tell stories um i like to make films and i've worked in the commercial world for a long time but the kind of like the cachet or the 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 15 minutes of fame or 10 minutes of fame whatever that is is because people like vans and that's something i grew up doing and it's and i i live lived in a van for 12 years to make ends meet and um and to be to stay creative and not have to compromise of what i wanted to do Mm. and then now it's blown up into this this trend and in a quarter i had a website that we produced over 400 short films about DIY tips and nutrition and people who are kind of independent um, outdoor surfer people. That was a pretty popular blog. So, yeah, I think that's that's kind of what I'm doing now is kind of riding off of that and trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. Do you think the van thing is a passing fad or do you think this is a fundamental shift in the way Americans are living? I think it's definitely... I don't know. I, I don't think too much ahead about it for other people, but I do know that for me, it's changed my life and it's allowed me to do, be who I am and, mm-hmm. and and do what I do. It's I've always been, I'm an only child, so I've always liked to have alone time to work. Mm-hmm. And 
having the the ability to get away from all the buzz in the in the city and and just work has been great and not paying rent um, has allowed me to not feel kind of swamped by the current especially you know around 2006 2007 with the recession I didn't I felt like I could still be nimble and mm-hmm. still push ahead with entrepreneurial things I was working right. on and, and you didn't have things. any overhead to worry about yeah not much anyway yeah, yeah. and did you always have uh sorry Miley um, <laughs> yeah Miley um she's a she's a sweet dog I got her a couple of years ago and when I knew I was going to be able to buy buy my house and have some land that she could run around in I didn't want to confine her to a van full time right so she spends a lot of her time chasing rabbits on on the four acres in Washington yeah yeah I love the videos where I was telling you earlier where she's just running along beside the van she looks really happy <laughs> I think that's an underrated at least for me it's an underrated uh satisfaction in life is is making animals happy i just love anytime i have animals i love making them you know like i had cats in spain i'd make these trees for them and there was this whole system around the top of the apartment where they could like run go you know just have their own world you know it's uh well we need somebody to love we need something to love yeah and and it's always sad when you see people with pets and the pets are miserable yeah you know it's like you got this wrong you know it's you got to give them a life you can't just suck the life out of them yeah what the what is that Uh, are we gonna get a ticket here backed up um i'll keep an eye out uh so uh tell me about the film because as i said i haven't seen it is what's the the message oh well this film my last i how many have you done Six, six now. Oh, really? And then, yeah, probably over 500 short films. Wow. Um, yeah, this last film is looking at um, ancient Polynesian agricultural techniques and how they really used um, the geography of, of all the all the different Polynesian islands, which were volcanic and had steep um, volcanic slopes, mm. very infertile soils. A lot of people tend to think of Hawaii and think, oh, it's a paradise. It's easy to grow things, but the soils are really thin. They're new land, and their techniques that they developed while they were traveling from island to island were really ingenious. Um, for example, the Ahupua'a system is basically a system that the Polynesian um Polynesians used across a lot of the islands and it's it's you keep the the forest intact at the very top um to cleanse the water and to hold water um and to not and to curb erosion and then they had um lowies below which are were a variety of the terraced kind of rice paddies that we think of in southeast asia but they're growing a perennial taro crop and meaning that you cut the stalk or you cut the leaves off and you cut the root and then you can replant the stalks over and over again and they keep growing. Mm. The effluent from those patties um, would go down and feed a buffer zone of palm trees, which were tsunami buffers, food, um, the coconuts, you know, provided um, building materials, all kinds of things. And then it would go finally into fish ponds Uh. that were created in a way that they had sticks so that skinny fish could swim in. They would get fattened up uh, yeah. from all the effluent. Kyle and they, was just telling me about this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah really. So they could swim in. They get too fat to swim back out. Exactly, yeah. So Fantastic. they had this easy protein source. And they created 
these really amazing societies in in the sense that they could they could do things like surf and do hula and hang out and have fun and and I just as I got older um thinking about having kids myself and thinking about bringing children into this world um I thought you know the, I don't know if they're going to be able to surf that much longer or 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 thinking you know just about other generations how much surfing has given me in my life and has helped me deal with um looking to a system like that which was arguably the birth of modern surf culture them and the peruvians some people say that they had their own kind of canoe things that they would read mm. these reed canoes but um all of the other all of the other factors that allowed people to have that much free time to go hang out you know it's like it was an anomaly after world war ii in america that we got to do that and kind of give our middle finger to the system and be the benefactors of colonialism and 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 then and now I'm seeing it kind of as everything does comes in waves and it's retracting and I think uh, and, and environmentally and socially and um, and looking back into that and, and seeing how they did things and then um, the irony of that system that was so beautiful is now it's being used um, as an industrial agricultural test bed for crops and open air uh, test sites and so it's um it's looking at current food production and how we've you know used the green revolution to grow our population and and it's a really incredible system in a lot of ways but it's also has um impacts on erosion and soil health and mm. toxicity yeah yeah when you said it's retracting what what do you mean you mean the the leisure time of the post war American culture that allowed people to just chill out and do things like surf? I think so. I think there was a more, a wider distribution of wealth and more people could sort of um, mm -hmm. glean the extra fat in of, of our economy and choose to cruise. How old are you? I'm 35. And so how do you feel about where we are historically? Are you angry? Are you? Do you feel cheated coming at this point historically? I think that there's a there's an expression in, in Judaism. I think it is that the rabbis say, you know, hold one piece of paper in your hand that says I'm everything, and another piece says I am nothing. And I think that that duality is what I always try to hold in. I mean, I think we're in some of the best of times in the entire world. We've won the lottery, you know, mm -hmm. in so many ways. Like the average lifespan was 30 in, 19, in 1600s. Oh, boy. And and now it's... <laughs> you, just, you don't know it, but you just stepped into a shit storm here. Is that something you all about? <laughs> this is like one of my big pet peeves. But anyway, finish your point. We'll okay. get back to that. Well, no, I think that, you know, a lot of ways our lives and the, and the things that we worry about are... Um, are just things that we never would have had to worry about before. And at the same time, we've been completely disconnected from community and place. We are the perpetrators and, and the, and have been affected by colonization and, and this sort of, um, lack of, of, um, ecological literacy that I think is going to be our, our undoing. And, um, and so these are tough times, you know, and I think a lot of people are dealing with trauma in, in a lot of different ways. And, and they, um, and these are, these are, you know, it's been very hard on me, um, growing up. I could, you know, kind of give you my sob story, but it's, it's not that big of a, you know, I, I think that there's, I try not to get 
too bogged down with the negative and look at the positive. And I think that there's a lot of opportunities to connect. I also think it's incredibly absurd in so many ways. And I think that people are searching for surrogates for things that should be um, basic rights that, mm. that people don't have and that they're that we're taught to search for them through retail therapy and a lot of weird shit that isn't real and isn't what we're evolutionarily designed to find as valuable and true speaking my language brother yeah Yeah. that that's what civilized to death is all about Mm -hmm. how how the whole civilizational process is stealing something that's free and um aligned with our nature and replacing it with something that's you have to pay for and that is a cheap piece of shit copy well in some way they've 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 turned people off to the fact that everything all wealth is created through natural resources and by mining and extracting them and processing them that's what everything is around us and we've somehow lost we've only been taught to worship this like paper that's like at the very end of that that we all think and and that's the theft is like you create enough systems uh, you, you create enough um of a telephone game of removal, you stop saying the real word or you stop mm. understanding how people are just cultures even now being mined because there's hardly anything else, you know, it's, it's, it's odd. It feels to me like, you know, you've talked about colonialism a little bit. Uh, I'm 55. So I've been watching this for a couple decades more than you. And I, what I'm seeing is the colonial um, sort of machine that was extracting wealth from Latin American countries and Africa and Asia and everything for, you know, a century or more in the case of America, it seems to me that it's now turned inward, that we're now, the American middle class is now being colonized. That's why you see millennials really identifying with people of color because they're yeah. really in that same boat now right and, and you're and you're trying to and people are trying to identify with it and there's all these shifts of who can claim what and um but absolutely and and i think back back to your point of how do i feel about it i mean i think until america gets really clear with its story that this is a country founded on genocide built by slavery until that's like real and people and that's not swept under the carpet that we are a part of a, a karmic wave that is just going to, that is going to happen. And I take solace in the fact that everything happens in waves and there's going to be, you know, the end of the end of a lot of things that we've known has come before and it's come again. And if the population shrinks in size or whatever happens, like I want to survive it cause I'm a survivor. It's fun. You know, but if I get paranoid about it and I let, I let it ruin my life, the thinking that, you know, am I going to survive or my kids going to survive? That's not that's not being. And I've only found peace in being. Mm-hmm. And when it when it comes back around, the earth's not going to die. It's going to cleanse itself of the things that are not congruous with everything else. So. Yeah. Yeah. There's um, an amazing book by Rebecca Solnit called The Paradise Built in Hell. It's about disaster sociology, people who study human behavior in disasters. And um, it's actually a very uh, hopeful book because 
what these people found is totally the opposite of what we're led to believe, right? Which is that if you strip away civilization, we'll all just be, you know, rampaging chimpanzees and tear each other apart and loot and rape and pillage and all the rest of it. In fact, what happens is when civilization falls apart because of an earthquake or a war or, a, you know, tsunami or whatever, what happens is that the survivors help each other. Mm-hmm. And not just people they know. They help strangers. They um, experience a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives that they didn't have before. And there's this amazing quote from the founder of the, of the whole discipline who spent his entire career doing this. And at the end of his career, he said, the main thing I've learned is that the true disaster is daily life. That when that breaks down, that's when people find meaning. And sure, people die. Terrible, you know, people lose everything. It, it can be, it's very traumatic for the people who are, you know, who lose it or who lose loved ones. But the point is that daily life is this numbing, uh, separating hmm. process that keeps us from meaning. And so I guess what I'm saying is there's, that you're if, saying there's a catharsis there having the having the the apocalypse apocalyptic scenario. People can move and exercise this kind of this um, age old de-stressing mechanism of right. dealing with. We find each other again yeah. in the in the disaster. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, so much of what I do is about. um trying to apply uh, insights gained from prehistory, how our ancestors lived as hunter-gatherers, to modern life. And, you know, you talked about trauma and how people are suffering so much. From my perspective, a lot of that is due to the misalignment between the way we live and the way we're evolved to live. So whether it's nutrition or exercise patterns, the kind of stress we're dealing with, uh, kind of relationships that we build, you know, and and another big problem is the absence of the sacred is the phrase that I use to describe it, which is not to say that we should all be going to church or, or some particular religious kind of thing. It's more that the secular modern world that we live in, nothing's sacred. Hmm. You know, nothing is held to be like we all agree that that's sacred. You, you know, children, oh, the children are sacred. Well, yeah, not really. Not once they're born, you know, not if they're black or poor or like, fuck them. You know, right now, Congress hasn't refunded the the child health care program. Six million kids are going to be without health care. Fuck it. Well, millionaires need more money. Yeah. I don't know. I don't want to get off on that rant, but um, even nature, you know, which I think was sort of at the base of what you were saying, like our relationship with the natural world is is blocked in so many ways. Do you well, feel when you're sorry, go ahead. You well, don't you feel that that right now we're in this time when everybody wants to be I mean, what you asked me, how do I feel about kind of being sponsored or or um having to share certain things on Instagram. I know there's been like a lot of backlash about vans and people who are kind of uh, what people would think is like whoring themselves out for that, for that Mm. thing and not really caring about it or not just doing it for that's the latest popular thing. But don't you think that even underneath that, 
we're a culture and even what we do in writing and, and uncovering things, wanting to be being curious, there's this idea that we want to, we want to turn over everything and we want to look at everything and, and examine it for what it is and think that maybe the world that exists today is broken or it's horrible um, as opposed to understanding why there's a reason that everything exists today and, and giving that some sort of, like, if, if there's religion around or if whatever is even established, even even the United States government, like there's a social contract there that people have given and maybe they've been lulled to sleep. It's like the frog in the boiling water or like a cow. I mean, I think when I look at our culture today, I think of us as livestock and that's why people have a really hard problem eating meat. That's my own personal because it reminds them of their own conditions um, in, in those in those ways. I mean, mm. obviously, I'm, I, I don't like the factory farming thing. Um but I think that a lot of this PC, you know, over the top, anyway, I'm going a lot of places with this, but I feel like that people are so excited right now to challenge different things. And I found that in my own life that I was so, I grew up in suburban Orange County in mega churchville. I was a shade too dark. I was an only child. Um, my parents were artists. Every whenever there was anything missing at one of my friends' houses, I was blamed. Really? There were swastikas with my name written "mutt guy" on, like with wax. You know, just t- normal surfer, um, uh-huh. racist kind of stuff. And and so I always felt like I wanted to reinvent my world. This this what I grew up in felt more. F- I would travel. I would travel to Fiji. I would travel to Tahiti. I would travel to Australia, I mean, a lot of different places in the world, South America, Latin, um, Central America, Europe, and all of them felt more like home. They all felt more humane mm. than where I grew up. And it wasn't just the grass is greener. It was it, after enough trips and enough kind of different length of time. Um, but I felt like, you know, a lot of my idea, it's always been around tearing down what is and and against and I know I've found peace in the last in recently inviting in more of a understanding and a compassion for what is going on right now and understanding that religion is a contract if it, if, if if the churches didn't work they wouldn't be in business for this long and maybe they're work through subversion or through things that that you know scaring people to death through through this this idea of hell or whatever it is but at the same time they provided you have a bunch of people going to a place to try to be better people mm. at the end of the day. And there, and there's singing and there's community. I mean, th- that's the only community in a place like Southern California that I can see. I mean, they've teared down the town squares and put in mini malls. So where are you going to go? You mm-hmm. know? And so I think I'm, I'm echoing what I think you're saying is like, there's, there is this space to have the sacred and maybe that's what it is right now. It's this mega that our churches and they have, there have been, we can point to a lot of violence and division um, through them, but like I'm finding right now, I'm finding the beauty in the fucked up shit too. Yeah. Yeah. There's um, an expression I often return to uh, Arthur Miller, this playwright who, who was married to Marilyn Monroe for a while in the fifties. He said, an era can be considered over when its basic illusions have been exhausted. And I feel like we live at a, in a historical moment when mm. all the basic illusions are exhausted. Yeah. You know, I mean, 
fuck the whole like talking about the church you know like the whole child abuse thing you know whoa that that pulled the rug out from under the church and you know sports with the all the doping and politics obviously and i mean like what american institution has not been discredited in the last 15 or 20 Hollywood, years i mean yeah name it and I, yeah so i don't live here you know anymore i grew up in southern california i live in rural washington and I've come down here. I've been in Venice Beach, parked in a parking lot and visiting a lot of friends. And I've had a really, really hard time hmm. in L.A. for a long time. And it was a lot of because I didn't feel like I fit in. And a lot of my relationships were shallow because I didn't want to let people in. And it, I think I'm realizing now I'm starting off my conversations with people, asking them what happened to you. Because surra- we're surrounded by people who are... Um, ambitious and mm. want to change or want to learn or want to you know want to create something want to change the world and i'm starting off my conversations with creative agencies and all these different people i'm meeting with is what happened to you to become so ambitious like what <laughs> what where did you fall out of the nest yeah how how, yeah. how are you first abused <laughs> yeah and that's like what hole are you trying to fill with all this money yeah, yeah. or or yeah. success or whatever it is yeah and I can I, I gotta tell you, I've been having such great conversations and oh, I start with that. Good. They're not hostile, they're not feeling attacked. That's people good. are waiting for that, I think. Yeah. Yeah, well that's I mean you know, you said when I was setting up the mic, she said this is like a one night stand, we just meet each other and we're gonna like, you know, go deep here. Uh <laughs> I mean, because that's like, that's my main thing, you know, is like I questioning ambition. And so I, I actually have this sort of unified field theory that Western civilization is designed, not designed by anyone, just it's it's a system, an emergent system, you know, that um, perpetuates mental illness because the people who rise to positions of prominence are unstable people. Otherwise, they would just be home hanging out Happy you know nothing telling stories to kids and getting laid and you know going to sleep and sleeping late and making breakfast and i mean if you just live life it takes it takes all day you know <laughs> so i never get shit done it takes all fucking day to just like get up and hang out and then go to bed you know yeah and uh yeah so people who rise to these positions of fame and wealth and political power and all that almost all of them are fucked up and I don't mean this in a judgmental sense. Mm. I mean it in the way you you were saying it. Like, what happened? Who hurt you? Yeah. You know? And and you find that almost always there is something there. I mean, Jim Carrey. Have you seen Jim and Andy, this thing on Netflix? Mm-mm. I mean, I'm looking around the van, I don't see a TV. <laughs> but... Um, if you if you ever want to check something out, it's it's incredible. But it's about Jim Carrey when he played Andy Kaufman. Do you mm-hmm. know Andy Kaufman was this reality bending yeah. performance artist kind of guy? Was that and something he, on the moon or something? Man on the moon. On the moon. Yeah. yeah. So it's about the making of that film. There's all this backstage footage, and and wow. Jim Carrey like really got into the character to the point where he sort of lost his mind and. Um, Anyway, I don't, I don't want to go off on that. But Jim Carrey's a, an interesting guy who, you know, was the biggest star in the world for years, made hundreds of millions of dollars probably. And you talk to him now and he's like, that shit's all bullshit. 
that's all bullshit. I was just trying to fill this. I just wanted to be loved. Yeah. You know, and he talks about it in that movie. I think that's what drives all those people. And if you get enough love from your parents or your friends or your, you know, your whatever, your community, then I think you end up kind of not needing anything else. Mellows you out. Yeah, and people, we, we don't have a rites of passage anymore. Right. That's huge, right? I mean, there's no, yeah. there's no quintessential moment where we become men or we become women. Yeah. And, and being old, it's, it's, it's so turned on its head. Everybody wants to be young. Yeah. They want to be, everybody wants to be stupid in a way or not <laughs> yeah. wise. Like being I'm glad wise you said is, that. I was thinking it. I didn't want to say it. Young and stupid. Yeah. That's yeah. like, that's awesome, man. Yeah. Impressionable. Innocence. Oh, we want innocence. to be a vessel for marketing. Yeah. Is this economy? And that's, that's the interesting thing even about social media and having a podcast or doing anything is these algorithms are set up to like sequester mental masturbation mm. and like you have an idea and or whatever it is if it's sensational then you get an audience and then you got to keep being sensational you got to keep interviewing interesting people or conflicted people or whatever it is and there's a there's an endless source of content because everybody secretly gets why that person's doing what they're doing but they know that's a, that's either their e their only pathway so they feed their ego machine which is i feel like ego is just it's an armor and it's an engine and it gets us to where we need to go and when we've been abused it revs up that engine and we've learned to harness that power and rise to the top mm. and focus our energy and need that need that whatever that is you know but yeah yeah. yeah, it gets you chasing something, but it's something you never catch. That's the problem. Yeah. You know, it, it, it gets you running on the wheel, but it's it's a wheel to nowhere. Yeah, I, this podcast, I, I don't do any advertising. It's zero. It's all listener supported. People send me money if they have it and they want to, and if they don't, they don't. That's awesome. Yeah, I had ads for the first couple of years, and then but so much of what I talk about on the podcast is about... Um, you know how stuff isn't gonna bring you happiness or meaning or you know minimalism get get a, seek experiences rather than more stuff and um you know i've like you i've spent most of my life traveling i've been out of the u.s far more years than i've been in the u.s even including my childhood at this point um Anyway, so with that kind of message in perspective, at, at a certain point, I, I heard myself saying, you know, you know, and here's the, you know, my package underwear, you know, twenty nine ninety nine. you <laughs> use the discount code Chris's package and get, you know, and it's like, what the fuck am I doing here? This is not worth the trouble. Yeah. So I, I thought the whole thing would collapse, but I just said to people like, hey, I can't do this anymore. If you like the podcast, support it. You know, this is, I think, before Patreon existed. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, and people responded. It's great. So it's this, I consider this to be like an island of non-commercialism in the world of, you know, all this commercial bullshit. Um, so I'm glad, you know, we sort of, we both understand that. I, like, I don't have people on who have, you know, DVD you know course courses that they contact me they want to push and all that kind of stuff it's i mean i don't it's not like i blame anyone for having things to sell or sponsorships or any of that kind of shit yeah um 
Yeah. Yeah, Patagonia, if you want to sponsor me, I'll put your name on the side of Scarlett <laughs> Johansson. <laughs> well, the whole yeah. court, you know, people ask, young guys ask me this all the time. And I'm like, yeah, how do you manage your, because they think I do a, they like, I don't know, a lot of people seem, people that talk to me at least, probably the people that talk shit behind my back don't like the way I associate with brands, but people who reach out um, are like, yeah, I really like the way that you interface with brands. I like mm. the way that you, you know, don't, you tell you're just doing what you're doing and how did you get there? They're like, they're like stumped that I've figured right. this out or where I'm not like adultering my lifestyle to like be some weird social media hybrid poster board and um have you ever seen the um you ever watch black mirror i love it yeah i haven't seen i just any. watched the first episode of season four the other night i haven't i haven't watched any of those. holy fuck yeah there's a couple in there that kind of make you just go god those brits are so smart they just got us so down and in the, in the first season right was like what like eight years ago or something yeah. it was a long time ago yeah you remember the one where the guy's on the exercise bike? It's the guy in Get oh, Out. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's, like, building up coin that he can use, and he gives it all to some girl. He tries to be on this yeah. American Idol surrogate show, right? Huh. It's, like, where she's singing, and he comes up there and then goes and just, like, takes down the system. Yeah. And, like, threatens to stab himself. Yeah, And, like, does this yeah. whole mental breakdown on live TV. <laughs> and, like... Yeah. It's like a it's it's like in front of a, a Hunger Games style just bourgeois audience. Yeah. And um that watching that episode made me kind of like hold my dog next to me and just lay and stare at the ceiling for like cuz I've never seen anything that like basically showed my life. Mm. My history is I I made I made a uh that that surf film when I was 19 and then I had a falling out with um a very well-known pro surfer. Um, I basically was suicidal for about two years. And then after that, um, wasn't really even in the surf world. And cause I was like excommunicated from the surf world in a way. It was, nobody, nobody really knows this. Um, that must have hurt like hell. Well, the thing was, is I lacked the, the guy ended up not, um, I, I I had posters on this guy's uh, of this guy on my wall when I was growing up, so I was unprepared for his humanity and his flaws, mm. and it was coming at so hard. And he had a lot of them back then, and um, and it was coming at me so hard that I I now would know how to deal with it and how to find the humanity and how to. But I was instead just kind of reacted and pulled inward and hurt myself and then mm. distanced myself, and it ended up being a really hard time. But it taught me a lot. But but through that. Um, I then made a film called Under the Sun, which is about these two towns in, in Australia. And one is called the Gold Coast and one's Byron Bay. And they're these neighboring towns. And, and what I kind of found when I was over there, I was going to make a movie about how surfing um, was our, the newest, strongest extension of colonialism. You yeah. know, all these surf towns popping up in Bali and seeing how trash they become. Huh. But my first stop was on the Gold Coast with Dane Reynolds, who's... Um, was in my first film when he was 16 and was traveling following him on his first WCT wild card which is a, a surf contest for pros and um, I learned the story of how these two coastal towns gave birth to the two archetypes that the surf industry back then that was booming multi-billion dollar industry would used to sell the surfing lifestyle on the Gold Coast was the birth of the contest surfer it was sort of the um, you know slick athletic guy and then on the, in the Gold Coast or on the, in Byron Bay it was the hippie kind of and those archetypes proliferate to today it's to some extent even though it's getting kind of 2.0 mm. um 
but that was a film directed at sort of dispelling any of the magic that I grew up with with younger younger kids um, of being sucked into this star system this 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 Hollywood or model at the celebrity culture that the surfing brands had looked to Hollywood to kind of make their clothes you know and so I was all and when I started quarter eye after that it was all about kind of taking down the surf industry because I felt like it had got so far from what the things that surfing had given me mm. and then um, because of the success of that I was then asked to be a part of the surf industry <laughs> and I was and I was offered a check wow. that was so good that I had this moment where just the guy you know in, in Black Mirror ep- yeah. ep- uh, season one episode two at the end of it he's in his nicer hotel room he doesn't have to do the exercise bike anymore he's making just enough to have a little bit better lifestyle and he's prepping the script of where he's like holding the glass up and like and giving everybody this release valve of how effed up it is so he's like basically being a paid subversive comic on display to kind of give people just from snapping in this way and i think that's what was my entry point into the surfing world was this mm. this guy that always was throwing rocks from the outside right that got a check to be able to do what he wanted to do yeah and for me i was very aware of that and i i created island earth with their support and which i felt like was um i really for me it was a give back to what i had kind of softened up and taken mm. and um to today um i'm able to buy my house in in the country and grow my own food and pursue trying to start a family you know one day soon hopefully and and so it's not it's not pure man yeah and and i and i was broke in a van for a very long time until i um i took the bait and i i, I feel good about what i'm doing with that and i feel like it's powered um some good things and, and i have tried to whether it's been popularizing aspects of surfing culture through the megaphone that they've given me things like body body surfing that everybody can enjoy i always found it completely surfers are very territorial yeah because they all congregate around these certain kinds of waves that look good on video Mm. that's it but there's all kinds of waves and if you ride if you body surf you can surf all the waves in between there's nobody out Mm. so i was always like oh you know hand planes and belly boards and body surfing because there's all this coastline that we're competing over because we all want our 15 minutes of fame Mm. and so i feel good about you know putting that out there and the van thing too i grew up with this and this was like an escape hatch from the pressures that i see kids are having to go through by the treadmill of okay i want to be near the jobs but getting that salary it's all going to get sucked from me by the rent and the gentrification happening on the california coast so you know to be clear when i said at the beginning of this when i said how do you feel about that Mm. i wasn't referring to like you making money from sponsorships or anything I, i was just referring to like something that you've been doing for a long time suddenly becoming popular you know what I mean? Oh, like if yeah. if you were like wearing flip flops with socks your whole life, and then suddenly it became fashionable, and everyone's wearing flip flops with socks. It, there's that weird feeling of like, wow, I used to be weird, and now now I'm normal, and I haven't changed. You know? You know, there's there's a couple older guys in my life who are longtime friends, and they've set a lot of trends. And I've watched a handful of them. I've been, through my documentaries and things I've done, I've been able, 
the reason I love doing documentaries, probably the same reason you love podcasts, is it's giving me an excuse to talk to people right. that I want to meet. Right, exactly. And um, and so I've been able to interview a lot of kind of this old guard in surfing and outdoor kind of rock climbing culture. And the ones that are bitter now thought that the things that they were doing and actively put out there to make themselves have a better life or contribute to the culture, whatever they wanted to do, if they thought that was theirs or if they thought that they were doing it for their ego, they got so bitter. Mm. And I thought that was so sad. And, and, and I remembered a lot of times that those things that they were doing. So I remembered that. And I always, I've always wanted to anything I've popular or I've helped to, I, I'm not, I'm not the originator of anything, but the things that I see, I try to psychoanalyze what people's needs and hopes and fears are and see things that are that are out there that can help their life and then use the tools of marketing because I grew up in Orange County in this background where you basically taught to make things cool right I mean I'm the oldest of the Millennials like I'm 80 1982 yeah. and so I was kind of born in this idea of how do you market something all the time it was taught in high school and was taught through you know at lunch you know people were doing it and trying it out and yeah and so I've tried to like get behind things that are going to help people and are, are going to last, like you said, and, and, and it's not me, it's just, I was able to do them. And if I ever think that somebody's copying me or if I ever get in that kind of a mode, it's just a shame to myself because I'm mm. robbing myself of my own happiness. Yeah. You put something out there, you got to let it go. Yeah. I feel that way even about. You know, people, I, I take a lot of flack about Sex at Dawn sometimes, and, and people are like, dude, I, like, how do you not get pissed off, you know? And it's like, I, you write a book, I, I didn't know this until I had the experience, but I quickly realized that people are having an experience with that thing, and it doesn't involve me. You know what I mean? It's like, I did, I wrote it, I put it out a long time ago, so I don't even remember. People, like, quote shit to me, and I'm like, I don't know, did I say that? I don't remember that. But um, but their relationship with that book or song or film or whatever whatever creative thing you do, that's between them and the thing. It doesn't involve us. Like, we're gone. We're, we're, we've left the stage, you know? Even to the extent that actors like or famous sports people... When people come up to them and they are in love with them, it's not even them. No. Yeah. It's 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 this thing that people have created in their mind and it creates this weird kind of separation of yourself, which yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is destructive as hell to the to the actor. I mean it's, I th- it's hard because it's not there's not an equal energy exchange. Somebody can come yeah. up to you and know so much more than you can honestly say about them. Oh, sure. It's, it happens all the time. And it's an overload. Yeah. And I think that's that blows people apart. It's cool. I mean, the, But podcasting fame, to the extent that I have any, is, is different because um, people actually do know me. Hmm. It's a weird thing. Yeah. You know, like I, I meet people and... Uh, you know, I'll, sometimes people would be like, hey, you know, like I met these guys. I was in Thailand like four times. I got yeah. recognized in Thailand because of the podcast, which is weird because my picture isn't anywhere on the podcast. But 
I was in Chiang Mai, and this guy's like, yo, Dr. Ryan, what's up? I'm like, yeah, weird. And they know the deep inner workings of your brain. Yeah, and, you and we'll sit down and have a beer, and, and you know, we're talking, and I'll be like, oh, yeah, that's like when I was in Alaska. And he's like, yeah, I know, in 1983, oh and you hitchhiked, and I was like, oh, fuck, yeah, it's weird. So, like, it's cool, though, because yeah. obviously, you know, they're they're nice people, and if they hated me, they wouldn't say, hey, but no, they wouldn't even know who the fuck I was. Um, but yeah, it's interesting, like very different than, uh, than an actor where people think they know you, but they have no fucking clue who you are. Yeah. They saw you pretending to be someone else. That doesn't, they just know what your face looks like. They don't know anything about, you know, you as a person. What's your, you, you said you're getting racial shit. Are, are you mixed race or what's your background? I actually had my DNA done. My dad was adopted in 1949 oh. in North Dakota and, um, nope, I'm white. I'm just dark. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Sorry to hear it, man. Yeah. Yeah, I did the 23andMe thing. My wife and I did it a few years ago. I did a TED Talk, and that was part of the swag package, a couple oh, of cool. DNA tests. Cool. Um, mine came back boring white dude, and my wife's fucking revolute changed her life. Huh. Um, I don't want to get into it because it's quite personal, yeah. but basically what she learned was that her family story wasn't didn't add up wow yeah yeah she's she's mixed she's uh from africa she's from mozambique oh, wow. um but um her story is that everybody was from india huh. but that turns out not to be totally true so that caused some interesting conversations you know with her with other people in her family so be careful if you do a dna test people don't ask a question you don't want the answer to. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I I related to what you were saying about growing up in America, but feeling more at home elsewhere. I left the states when I was in my early twenties and lived overseas my whole life until like a year and a half ago. Where did you live? Uh, well, I traveled a lot. I've been all over Latin America and Asia. Hmm. Uh, not so much in Africa. I've, just a couple short trips in Africa. Um, and I've been based in Barcelona since uh, 89. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's been my home base for most of my adult life. What drew you there, the lifestyle or work? Or? You know, when I got there, I was on my way somewhere else. I, I traveled a lot, obviously, right? And um, the story was I... I want, my plan was I was going to, at the time, you, know, you won't remember this, but um, there was a lot of pressure on the Burmese government. Anyun Sun Shi had just won the Nobel Peace Prize. She was, this was before she was under house arrest. Um, and Burma had been cut off from the Western world since World War II by this military dictatorship. And it looked like like there were all these sanctions against them and companies were boycotting them and there was all this pressure coming. And so it looked like that was going to, that government was going to collapse. So my plan was uh, go to Spain. I, I got a certificate in teaching English as a foreign language. So basically you learn these techniques for how to teach English to people where you don't even have a common language with them. So you just, you know, I could teach... You know, people you point to a bowl of spaghetti or like, yeah, it's visual. Something. Yeah. A lot of it's visual and, and acting and, you know, pantomime and all that. Yeah. So I got that, that certificate and I thought, well, I'll go to Spain. I'll hang out in, in Sevilla. 
and I'd been traveling a lot, so I sort of wanted to be stable for a year or two and, you know, meet some women and learn Spanish and check out Spain. And then once this government falls in Burma, I'll go to Budapest and catch the Trans-Siberian Railroad to Beijing. And then I'll go from Beijing overland down into Burma, and I'll be like in the first wave of Westerners showing up in Burma, and I'll have this incredible once-in-a-lifetime experience, right? So I go to Spain. Actually, I went to Paris, visit a friend there, and then I thought, well, instead of just flying to Sevilla, I'll go by bus, check out Barcelona for a few days, then go to Madrid a few days, then go to Seville and start my life there. And so I went to Barcelona, and the first night there, I was on the Ramblas. You've been to Barcelona? I have not. Yeah, So I'm, and the Ramblas is this famous pedestrian street. And I'm sitting there, and, and I basically a guy distracted me, and the other guy stole my bag. And my passport was in there and some other stuff. It was the first time I'd been robbed in 10 years traveling around the world. And um, so I had to get a new passport. And that was going to take 10 days or something. And um, so I found I had this other, like, this other bag. And I had a journal in it. And there was a, a guy's phone number. This guy had met Marcos. I'd met him in northern Mexico in the Copper Canyon. I went down with the Tarahumara Indians in this canyon there, and I met this dude, and that's a whole other story. The distance runners, were you into Yeah. That? Oh. No, I wasn't into distance running. I was just into traveling around and checking shit out. Um, but I met him. I, did, I hiked back there, and I met this guy in the middle of nowhere sitting on the roof of a cathedral. <laughs> and um, anyway, he had given me the number of his sister— and he said, if you're ever in Barcelona, call my sister and she'll know where I am. This is before internet. You couldn't, you know, just do, you know, like now it's crazy. Everything's different. But so I called this number and she's like, oh, yeah, Marcos is right here. So, hey, Marcos, I'm that, I'm this American guy we met four years ago. And, I don't know. and he's like, yeah, sure. Hey, how you? So Marcos decided to show me in those 10 days, like all his favorite parts of Barcelona took me up into the Pyrenees, went hiking, beautiful mountains, introduced me to all these women and favorite bars and da-da-da. So by the time I got my passport, someone had offered me a job. I had a place to live. I'd met this woman I was into, and I was like, yeah, maybe I'll spend the winter, you know? This was November. 25 years later, you know, fucking life happened. So, And the government never changed in Burma. The fucking generals are still in charge. So, so, but, I mean, but on a deeper level, there was a sense of, you know, this, this weird feeling of like, uh, look, I'll never be Spanish. At that point, I didn't even speak Spanish. Yeah. But I get this place. Like, I get it. The, the values of this culture align pretty well with my own personal values. Like, it's not about work, right? It's not about money. It's about having a good time, beauty. You know, it's a sunny day. You have lunch outside. Uh, you'd spend an hour at least at lunch. There no. When I got to Spain, there were no to-go cups. Cars in, in Spain don't have cup holders. Because why would you drive down the road drinking something mm. if you want a coffee you stop you go to a cafe you sit down you read the paper you talk with your friend and you have a fucking coffee yeah what's the hurry man mm. you know so that that approach to life uh 
I really enjoyed. And also, I, I really liked the way... Um, the way Spanish women interacted with me. The, f- so? the Well, flirtation is a big part of life in Spain. And, you know, but here we run into the problem with language because people listening to this, hearing that word in English, think it means a certain thing. But flirtation in Spain doesn't mean trying to get laid. It's more about um, just recognizing and acknowledging a spark between two people and you know for example i'd go into a a shop it's an appreciation it's appreciation and it's not there's no agenda yeah and um it doesn't even it's not even really sexual Mm. like an old lady might call you guapo Mm. Right. Like, uh, you know, you go in to buy whatever, a bus pass and the woman say, oh, yeah, it's, you know, four euros guapo, which means like good looking. They're celebrating the sensuality of life in, and, through another person. Exactly. Exactly. And and you walk down the street and beautiful women will look right into your eyes. Mm. And these are women who are just fucking gorgeous. I mean, I love Spanish women and smile in a way that as an American guy feels like something out of a porn movie or something it's like oh yeah, my it hits god you in a weird place it you hits you really hard deal with it and there it's just like it's a beautiful day you look like an interesting person here's a smile makes you happy makes me happy there's no loss there's no problem hmm. that hit me really hard yeah. and i really liked it and it was a big part of this process i mean my life a lot of my life the trajectory has been about shedding shame yeah you know, and just like being comfortable and relaxed and, and not stressing about things. And um, so, yeah, I got to Spain and I was just like, fuck, I like this. I, I, I get this. I like the food tastes good. You know, you get a sandwich in Spain. Yes, for a ham sandwich. It's a baguette with some olive oil and a couple of pieces of really good ham. It's delicious. That's it. Yeah. You taste the ham. And they don't understand. Americans like, oh, you want lettuce and tomato and mustard and mayo and, you know, blah, blah, blah. blah. You don't taste any of it. Yeah. I remember uh, I was talking with a Spanish doctor, Dr. Rubio. I used to teach English in hospitals there for a while. And we were talking about American culture. And he said, he said, Chris, the thing about your culture in America is... You Americans have no sense of the ridiculous. He's like, Jimi Hendrix could only be American, <laughs> you know. But on the other hand, yeah. you have, you know, like all these serial killers and like all these extremes because there's no... Celebrity presidents. Yeah, yeah well, that was before Trump. But yeah, it fits the, fits the metaphor. But it's true. It's the best thing and the worst thing about this country. There's just like... Nobody ever says, how oh, that's crazy. Don't do that. Like, do you feel like you're, I mean, I feel like shame to me means is an armor for love. It's like an armor that love can't penetrate. You mm. know? It's like a, it's a way to keep, to keep, um, maybe love that we didn't feel 
And so because it didn't pass through enough, it started getting calloused and there started being a wall there or something. Mm. What, it, what, what was your process of shedding shame? Did it feel like it took a pretty linear course or was it, did it have different aspects to it? Yeah, it definitely had different aspects. Um, yeah, and it's, it's something I, I would need to think about more deeply to give you a sincere answer. But I mean, part of it, is bodily shame, mm-hmm. you know, just like whatever, you know, everybody has physical uh, aspects that they would change about themselves. And so part of it would have been that, um, you know, I always wanted to look like you. I always felt like I was way too white. You know, I don't like being super white. I always wanted to look like an American Indian, dark hair, darker skin. You know, that was my thing. Yeah. And, um, so part of it was related to physical stuff. I think part of it was about uh, ambition and like really trying to think my way out of the box of ambition and mm, any sense of needing to prove yourself and, you know, to whom are you proving yourself and what's it mean? I moved a lot when I was a kid. So my a lot of my traumas were about always being the new kid and not having a community of friends, uh, you know, that I could count on and, you know, eating alone in the lunchroom and that kind of shit, you know. So I developed psychological defenses against that. Not wanting to be left alone? Uh, No. Well, sort of the opposite. I mean, I ended up becoming hyper self-sufficient and self-contained and... But, Very, but but as a as a defense mechanism for not wanting to be abandoned by your surroundings? Well, or? I mean, if, as a defense mechanism of not having friends. So mm-hmm. I just decided, all right, I don't need them. Yeah. You know, like I, you know, for example, my sister is four years younger than me. Everywhere we moved within a couple of weeks, she adopted the local accent. So yeah. when we moved to the south, she was, you know, talking like this suddenly. It's like, how the fuck did that happen, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I never adopted any accent. And so I, my thing was kind of like self-contained. I don't need anything. I don't need anyone. I'm good, yeah. you know, the way it is. And which served me well when I was traveling because, you know, I traveled all over the world. Me and it's like, hey, I can like literally, and you're probably the same way. I could, I could fly to Bangkok tomorrow and live there. I don't care. I'd be fine. I'd make friends. I'd be, I I know how to land on my feet and doesn't matter where it is, which is cool. But, you know, now here I am in my mid fifties. And if, if I made a list of my 10 closest friends, they're probably in 10 different countries. So, you know, they're not, they aren't people I can call to, you know, get me out of jail or give me a ride from the airport, you know? So it's a weird kind of community. But my thing, I mean, part of it was, I mean, not to get into my story too much here, but uh, I was an arrogant Hmm. fuck. That was was my main thing that I had to work through in my 20s, I think, that I was really arrogant. I thought I was smarter than everybody, and I thought that really... And that now I look back and I see that was, you know, out of fear and, you know, vulnerability. But I did this... About the time you were born, I hitchhiked from New York to Alaska. Wow. And that was a pivotal, pivotal time in my life. What happened? I, um, what happened? I was in college. And this was in the height of my 
arrogance and because uh, I was like a very good student and I was hanging out with professors all the time and winning awards and all that shit and uh, <laughs> I'm just seeing a really funny funny look on your dog's face right now but uh, yeah so what happened was that I was hanging out with all these geniuses and I skipped a year of college and I decided I wanted to go to Alaska because I wanted to see a frontier and so I hitchhiked from New York uh, across, well, first across the U.S. and then went, took the ferry from Seattle up the Inside Passage. And on the way back, I came through Canada. But in the process, I met all these amazing people who were incredibly kind to me and would, like, take me to their house and let me sleep in their you know, in their living room on the sofa and then feed me breakfast and then give me a ride back out to the highway the next day and, you know, let me take a shower. And I remember one guy gave me a jacket because I didn't have, I'd lost my jacket or something. And, like, he took it off his back and gave it to me. And all these people were just so kind to me. And, you know, I remember this one house I was at, the guy, like, he was a really cool dude. He, you know, he had, like, really nice dogs and his kids were cool and his wife was beautiful and smart and funny and you know everyone was friendly and happy and he'd built the house himself and you know he knew how to fix his car and knew how to do all the shit and like the dogs were really well trained and like everything was really working well in this life and this is a guy with a high school education who had no idea about any of the philosophy or the literature that I was into and and it's not, he just didn't need it, you know? And then I thought back on my professors and my friends who were miserable, angry, bitter, unfriendly people. I mean, and I thought, if this guy stumbled into my world, what would happen to him? Like, he'd, he'd be rejected and pissed on. I stumble into his world. He invites me to dinner and lets me sleep in his daughter's bedroom. You know, it's like, yeah. what the fuck? Who do I want to be like? Yeah. You know, I was 21, 22. And it's like, well, I'm looking ahead like, well, who do I want to be like? I don't really want to be like my professors. Yeah. I want to be like this guy, you know? So that was a really important moment for me because it, you know, I I left the path I was on and ended up just... Uh, that year in Alaska, I, I said, okay, until I'm 30, I'm not going to commit to anything. No graduate school, no medical school, no marriage, no career. I'm going to take the next nine years or whatever it was, and I'm just going to float around the world, see as much as I can, have as many adventures as I can, and do things that are as sort of unpredictable from where I'm sitting right now as possible and then after 30 then I then I'll know enough that I can decide what to do with my life so that's what I did did but you figure it out at 30 no <laughs> <laughs> no I didn't even really start thinking about it till 30 because until 30 I was happy just traveling yeah you know that was enough for me but somewhere around 30 I started to think yeah this isn't gonna this isn't really, you know, scratching the itch anymore, just getting more stamps on my passport. Do you think you have it figured out now? No, I don't think you ever figure it out. I mean, but I think, you know, I think uh, one thing I've learned is that when you're young, 
you think you'll answer certain questions. And at least in my experience, when you get older, some of them you answer, but a lot of them you just stop asking. They're just not really important. And Like what? You know, what's the meaning of life? Uh, you know, I don't know. Should I, in my case, like I never really wanted to have kids, but there was a voice in me that often thought like, oh, you might regret it, man. You might regret it, you know? And at this point, you know, I don't think about that anymore. I don't, don't worry about it. Um, you know, I realize that what's important is that love flows through your life. And if it flows into your kids, that that's beautiful. If it flows into a wife or, or a partner, a lifelong partner, that's beautiful. If it flows into, you know, several different people, that's beautiful. If you don't have kids and it flows into your um, your friends and your community and, you know, it, as long as it flows, it doesn't really matter where it flows or who it flows into as long as it flows. I think the problem is when we get blocked up, you know, or we think we're saving it. Oh, fuck, it's my phone. Sorry. Nice ringtone. Yeah. Stevie Nicks? Uh, Steely Dan. Oh, it's Steely Dan. A19. Yeah, it's a very ironic song about an older dude and a younger woman. Next time you listen to it, listen for the irony, because he says, he says, uh, at the beginning, he says, Hey, 19, that's Aretha Franklin. She don't remember the Queen of Soul. Like, she, the, the young girl doesn't know all this stuff. But the, the chorus is the Cuervo gold, the fine Colombian make tonight a wonderful thing. So without the tequila and the Coke, mm. this wouldn't be happening. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's all about the drugs. So listen, we've been talking. I've been talking about myself too much here. Um, I'm going to I'm going to let you uh, get on with your life. Where, where are you going from here? I've. um my girlfriend comes down on Monday in San, uh, to San Diego. We're going to hang out, and then I'm going to go to Hawaii. I have a, oh, a nice. sunblock company um, that I started called Monda. Monda. M-A-N-D-A. And M-A, Monda. Huh. We're going to, it means like, send it, send it, go for it, Mexican yeah, slang. Yeah, Monda. Monda uh, me. Yeah, I'm going to do some promo stuff there, and then just hang out, try to figure out. This is the first time I haven't had something I'm going to do for a while. So I'm just trying to... Does that cause you anxiety? Um, it would have in the past more than it does now. Um, I'm just sitting in it kind of like you, you were talking about, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah. I've been so busy for so long that this feels really good. And I, I, you know, one of the things I've, I've never liked the feeling that I've stacked my life so full that I can't take on the spontaneous things that are really great. Yeah. And, um, it seems like more spontaneous things are happening to me all the time. So I <laughs> might just, that's try the problem. <laughs> yeah, man. I, I signed a book contract six years ago. The book was due five years ago. <laughs> and the problem is it's like, life life is too short and it's getting shorter all the time and it's like i you know you get all these great opportunities like who am i going to say no to like you know hey you want to go to utah and you know do some bike biking in the backcountry i'm not going to say no to that 
You know, you want to go to Burning Man? Well, yeah. You want to go see the eclipse? Yeah. You know, it's like I spent all summer in the van up up in the northwest, up in you know your area, and it's great. I yeah. loved it. It's yeah, a good life and a you nice know. pace. Yeah, and my only regret, as usual, is that we went too fast. Yeah, you know, instead of spending one night in each of those areas, we should have spent you know five. I mean, we camped next to it, and I mean, I. We camped next to the river. So every morning you get up, you jump in the river. It's so nice and so good for your body, that like cold rush in the morning and fires at night. I mean, I loaded up my laptop with all these movies and never watched one of them. Not a single one. I budgeted, like I figured one night a week we'll stay in a motel and take showers. Never. <laughs> Didn't do it. Why would you? Did Were these places that you'd been to before? Uh, some were, but most weren't. No, I mean, it was, went up the coast. I was doing podcasts, so I went up Mendocino and did a podcast with um, uh, an LSD chef who had, like, fueled the acid boom in the late 60s with Orange Sunshine. Um, Tim Scully was his name. Mendocino, then we went across to uh, Lassen. Uh, National Park. Beautiful. Beautiful. Never yeah. been there before. And then up into eastern Oregon and then uh, across into Idaho wow. up to the Canadian border then into Montana and then down Wyoming and then back across to Portland. I had a gig in Portland to go to. Amazing part of the country you went on. Yeah, it was really nice. What I find is I'll do routes and then I'll find the gems and then I'll spend months at a time at these one spots. Yeah. But some of those exploratory trips, it. you don't find it until you start asking around and right. talking to people. And, and you got to go slow. Yeah. And that's the way I travel internationally, too. It's, you know, like first time I went to India, I sort of traveled around until I got to this place called Pushkar. And I was like, oh, yeah, fuck, I'm just staying here. I stayed there like two months. You know, Pushkar was amazing. Yeah, and then, you know, travel, 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 and then get to a great place. I'm like, yeah, just going to chill here, you know. i got nowhere to go, nothing to do. And it's cheaper to stay in one place than to be moving all the time. And Yeah, I like that. I like traveling. To me, the difference between travel and tourism is when I'm traveling, I'm counting up how long I've been out on the road how many months I've been traveling and tourism I'm counting down to when I have to be back mm, and it's a totally different way of looking at things yeah you know and I, I like to travel where I'm limited by money not by time yeah. although now with the podcast it's so cool I can take it on the road and I can just keep going and going so we'll see we'll see my wife's in Peru right now she's coming back in a couple of days she's been in the Oh, cool. Peruvian Amazon assisting a shaman at a ayahuasca center. Oh, cool. I did that a few years ago. It was something like that. I wasn't assisting, but I was actually. Yeah. That's cool. How's she like it? Have you talked to her? Or has it been yeah, kind of she she likes it. She's, I mean, well, I've had her on the pod. She was on the podcast before she went down. She's a psychiatrist. Oh, wow. And she... Um, has basically come to the end of her career as a conventional psychiatrist, not happy giving people pills anymore. Mm. So she's looking at plant medicines and other alternative approaches that she can incorporate into her medical training and all that. Wow. So, yeah, who knows? I mean, we could end up 
living in Peru. <laughs> yeah. Was she near Terrapoto or what part? Uh, near uh, Iquitos. Yeah. Yeah. And then she also was in uh, Pacupa, Pacalpa. Uh -huh. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Beautiful. So where can people find you, man? Your I can say your Instagram feed is a source of constant pleasure for me. I, I, you're a great photographer as well as everything else you do. Your van. It's really nice. It's funny to be in this van. I feel like a fanboy, man. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, it's just home when I'm on the road. Yeah, um, yeah you can, my Instagram is where I'm most active. Mm -hmm. Cyrus, my name C-Y-R-U-S underscore Sutton. And yeah, I'm, I keep people updated with the films I'm making and stuff like that from there. Cool. All right. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. I appreciate it. Pretty cool dude, huh? Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Cyrus Sutton. Check him out on Instagram. That seems to be the main place where you can find him. But of course, there's a lot going on on YouTube as well. He's got lots of short videos up there that you can check out. And uh, not all of them are about his van. <laughs> uh yeah, this is the part of the podcast, one of the parts of the podcast where, in most cases, you would hear an advertisement for something. But I'm not going to advertise shit. I'm just going to say, note the absence of advertisements. And if you like that and want to support that financially, you can do that through Patreon, or you can do it through uh, clicking at that uh, the Amazon link on my webpage and using that when you buy stuff at Amazon. And you can do it um, by giving money to a homeless person or writing a review of the podcast or just doing something else that gives value to the world. Thank you for that. Um, I want to play something here, which is a recording I made of a guy named Clay. Uh, we were hanging out with our friends, Kevin and Carol, in Austin. Uh, you may know them. Uh, they've been on the podcast. They have a Zero Gravity Institute in Austin, which is the first place I ever experienced a float tank. And um, anyway, we were hanging out and their buddy Clay was around and uh, Clay is a poet. And uh, at one point he, he read some poetry, some of his, his work to us. And I really enjoyed it. And um, so I recorded one of the poems that he was reading called Time. I recorded it on my phone. I didn't get out all the podcast gear, um, so you'll notice a difference in the sound quality. But you can you can hear the poem. It's about the words more than the uh, audio fidelity. Um, anyway, this is uh, Clay Roper, and he's reading a, an original poem called Time. And after that, uh, we'll just have Carsey Blanton playing you out with Smoke Alarm, as always. So thanks for listening to this episode, and I will uh, catch you soon. Time. A mind-crafted illusion is a slave master whose bonds are incremental, linear, concrete traps. Minutes which diminish by definition and restriction. With your numbers in the system and a watch on your wrist, you display the brand of a slave. Don't stay your hand in this age of information and knowledge control that wants to edge on your soul to make it vegetable, cold, sold to the network. No, let's work for cities of gold. I'm told you ask and you shall receive. Seconds which beckon with their simple, singular sense to aid you, cage you in your body. No mistakes, don't fake, because the devil's in the lobby. Liars' mouths will only serve his hobby. Man's not alone, but cocooned in his comfort zone with pleasure and leisure, instant gratification, sensation, television, whips, and leather.
Our ego-serving pause is left zombified, mummified, wrapped in gauze. Unwrap yourself, revive yourself, wake up to the source of awe, jaw, life is the law. Hours devour our spirit and our power, with the bricks of time we assemble a tower, it trembles, resembling Babel. I tend to babble on. Babylon was built to fall, its dented walls won't hold it all, with a rumble it'll crumble under Zion's call. My teacher's in town, his name is Love, a dove from above, his essence fits your soul like a glove, and the music he brings, that music that you hear, not just with your ears, but in here, catches your sail without fail, sundering the veil, and every step of your feet echoes the beat of the universal heart, dances in art, your body the paint, and time nothing but a faint canvas for the celebration of life. What's that called? Time. Time. Yeah. And what's your name? Uh, Clay. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground